The tenth chapter of Hebrews ends with a positive note of assurance. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The writer was confident that he and his readers were secure before the Lord because they had a faith that would endure. They had a faith that would keep them connected to the Lord and preserve their souls. Well, I'm confident we all understand that faith is the key to our relationship with the Lord. But what is faith? And how do we know whether we really have it or not? We talk about it all the time. But what is faith? Surprisingly, faith is only defined once for us in all of Scripture. And that definition appears in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the chapter known universally as the faith chapter. But even there, the actual definition of faith is only three verses long. The bulk of the chapter merely illustrates faith, giving examples of men and women who had it and showing what it accomplished in their lives. So apparently faith is something that is best defined by describing what it does. But yet our author does set before us a brief definition of faith in the first three verses of the 11th chapter before moving quickly to illustrate it. And this morning we're going to take a look at that definition and the first three examples he uses to illustrate three fundamental elements of faith. A future element, a present element, and a past element. We begin with a look at the future element of faith, assurance of the future. Now, faith is the assurance of things Hoped for. We'll just stop right there. When we think of faith, we generally think in terms of the future, and so does our author. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It has to do with what isn't here yet, something down the road. It has to do with tomorrow. And indeed, a great deal of faith is tied to the future. It's a way of looking ahead with optimism. It's hope for the future. However, not all hope for the future should be called faith. You know, hope, hope can be absolutely groundless. Hope can be nothing more than wishful thinking. Most of the time we're not expressing faith when we say, I hope so. We're just wishing, hoping things will turn out the way we want them to turn out. And many times we hope when there's little reason for hope. We're just hanging on to the chance that something might happen that will make things turn out okay. You know, we're told we have a terminal disease, but hope... The doctor is wrong. 
or a new cure will be found. Or that God will step in and perform a miracle. But that isn't faith. That's just hoping. And yes, even hoping that God will step in and perform a miracle isn't necessarily faith. Religious hoping can be as groundless as non-religious hoping. And changing words or phrases doesn't change hope into faith either. Some assume that they can just muster up the courage to say, I know things will be the way I want them to be, that hope is changed into faith. But that's not true. Just wanting something so much that you psych yourself into believing it will happen is not faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's knowing something for sure about the future, not just hoping about the future. But how can we know anything for sure about the future? Well, we'll find that out when we come to our example of this element of faith. Let's just go on to the next element. The conviction of the unseen present. Or as we're told in the second half of verse 1, faith is the conviction of things not seen. The exercise of faith isn't totally relegated to the realm of the future. There's also a present element to faith. Faith in this present sense is the conviction that something we can't see is having an effect on us. And like all aspects of faith, the present element of faith isn't limited to religious matters. The unseen things that affect us may be physical in nature. You know, I have faith that when I jump into the air, gravity will bring me back down. I've never seen it, but I have faith that it's there. And the same is true with many laws of nature. I can't see them, and I may not totally understand them, but I know they're at work. Some unseen realities, however, are not physical in nature. There are some unseen things around us that can't be reduced to an energy field or be explained by physical means. They are spiritual in nature. And it's not difficult for most to recognize the existence of a spiritual realm because man is by nature a spiritual being. That's what separates him from the animals. We think. We reason. And the experiences of life force us to believe in unseen realities, both the ones that can be explained on a physical, scientific level and those that can't, those that require a spiritual explanation. And religious faith, in its simplest form, is merely recognition that many of these unseen forces that are at play in our lives are spiritual ones. Now, for some, faith in the unseen spiritual realm is just a feeling that everything is under control. 
that someone or something is guiding the course of history. That a higher power is involved in the affairs of men. And this is what most people think of when they hear the word faith. Our author, however, makes it clear that the faith he's talking about is more than just a feeling that there are unseen spiritual forces or that our lives are being directed by forces we can't see. He says faith is the conviction of things not seen. It's having become absolutely convinced about the unseen spiritual realities that surround us. And that requires actually knowing things about that unseen world. It's not a vague feeling. It's conviction. And conviction is based on knowledge. The word translated here as conviction was translated evidence in the King James. It's a word that's used only here in the New Testament. And one that has to do with proving something, convincing someone of something by examining the evidence. And evidence has to be detailed and concrete before it's convincing. So faith in the present sense is the conviction based on evidence that there are unseen yet knowable spiritual forces at work in our lives. How those forces become knowable will be illustrated in an example our author gives. But before he gets there, he moves to the third element of faith. And he does so by drawing our attention to the men of old who exercised faith in the past. Verses 2 and 3. Speaking of faith, for it by men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Not only is there a future and a present element of faith, there's also a past element of faith. In fact, all of history has to be accepted on faith. There is no way you can believe anything that is historical without faith. There's no way you can actually prove that George Washington ever lived, let alone that he was the first president of the United States, without exercising faith in the historical evidence. You can't go back and meet George yourself. You have to have faith in those who have gone before and faith in the reliability as witnesses. So faith in the past is not limited to spiritual things. If we are to understand anything about our past, we have to have faith. But the faith that gained approval for the men of old went beyond faith in historical records set down by eyewitnesses. Their faith led them to an understanding of the nature of the universe and its origin. And there were no eyewitnesses 
to those historical facts. No one was present when the walls were prepared. No one actually saw this physical universe come into being through the agency of purely spiritual forces. So there is a spiritual element to faith in the past. And it's faith in the spiritual element of our past that gains God's approval. But how do we come to know that spiritual element? How can we discover God's involvement in the past? How can we know the origin of all things? The answer to this also comes from the examples given. So let's get to those examples. Our author reverses the order here and begins with an example of faith that helps us gain an understanding of the past. Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, Abel, you may recall, was a member of the first family on earth. His parents were Adam and Eve, and Cain was his elder brother. The incident mentioned here pertains to the first recorded offering made to God. After man sinned and God broke fellowship with him, apparently God made known to man how those sins could be atoned, how they could be covered from God's sight. So a perfect God could reestablish a personal relationship with sinful men. And that procedure involved sacrificial offerings. Now we know from the original account in Genesis that Cain, a tiller of the ground, brought the fruit of his fields to God as an offering, and Abel brought a lamb from his flocks. The original doesn't tell us why, but it does make clear that God had regard for Abel and his offering, but had no regard for Cain's. In Hebrews, we find out the reason Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. Abel's, we are told, was offered in faith. Apparently, God had specifically said what he wanted in a sacrifice. Abel believed God and acted upon what he said. God had revealed truth about his condition and his need for a restored fellowship with the one who created him, with his creator. And quite frankly, that is how we find out about our unwitnessed past. Our Creator, the only one who is there, reveals it. He revealed it to the first family on earth. He later revealed it to Moses, who recorded it for us. That is how we get our understanding, our fundamental understanding of the past. That's where we find the answers to the questions of, where did I come from? And why am I here? We gain that understanding by accepting the testimony of God himself. 
But God doesn't simply reveal himself and his will and then drop out of the picture. He went on to make it clear that Abel had become righteous by following his instructions. God made his approval known to Abel and to us. And in that way, Abel, though dead, still speaks. We learn of the faith that pleases God by the experiences of those who gained God's approval in the past. And just as Abel obtained the testimony of God's approval, so we obtain God's testimony concerning our past actions. God lets us know when we do things right according to his will. Now, he doesn't speak to us in an audible voice today to assure us of our approval. But he does honor our past faith by making things work into a recognizable pattern for good. He promised that if we will be what he's called us to be, if we are called according to his purposes, that he will cause all things to work together for good. That means we will be able to look back and see God's hand in our affairs. We will be able to see how he can take even bad situations and circumstances and bring good from them when by faith we respond to them as he has asked us to. That testimony concerning our past actions gives us an understanding of faith then that helps us exercise faith in the present. So let's go on to the example of that present element of faith, verses 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The Old Testament tells us that Enoch walked with God. The account makes it clear that for the first 65 years of his life, he was out of fellowship with God, out of touch with the unseen realities surrounding his life. But apparently he was searching for God. He was trying to make sense of life. And then after the birth of his son, which may have had something to do with his finally seeing the hand of God in his life, he found a relationship with his Creator. And Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years. Then, when he was 365 years old, the Old Testament says God took him. And Hebrews explains that Enoch was taken up to enter the spiritual realm without ever seeing physical death. He was one of only two men in all of history to never see death, the other being the prophet Elijah. 
But how did Enoch find God? How did he discover the reality of the unseen world and become so convinced of it that he walked faithfully with God for 300 years on earth and still walks with Him today? The answer, I'm convinced, is that God rewarded Enoch's search by revealing Himself to him. He didn't leave Enoch groping forever with a vague understanding of the spiritual realms. He revealed himself to Enoch in a way that convinced him of his actual presence. Now, how he did so, we're not told. But God does not leave those who honestly search for him in faith, groping in the dark. He didn't then, and he doesn't now. He still reveals himself to those who search for Him. He rewards those who seek Him by revealing Himself to them. And He reveals Himself in many ways. Through nature. Through circumstances of life. Through reason and contemplation. In fact, the Apostle Paul assured us in Romans that God has made his existence known to every man. And of course, he fully revealed himself in his word and through his Son. We can rest confident that God will reward those who in faith seek him. He will give them whatever they need to become absolutely convinced about His unseen presence in the world and in our lives. And finally, we can have assurance of the future, just as did Noah. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah knew what was going to happen because God told him. And that's the only way we can know anything for sure about the future. God has to tell us. That's not to say God tells us everything about the future. He doesn't. And we cannot presume God will do something we want Him to do when He hasn't told us He will do it. That is groundless religious hoping. It's not faith. You know, I would not be demonstrating faith in God if I jumped in front of a Mack truck, believing that God would miraculously stop the truck or pull me out of the way. That's not faith. That's stupidity. God never promised He would save me from Mack trucks. So it would be presumptuous for me to say, he will. On the other hand, he has told me some things about the future. 
and I can be assured of them. God told Noah he was going to destroy the world with a flood. He also told Noah what to do if he wanted to be saved from the coming judgment. Those things Noah could know for sure. And since he acted upon them, he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. God judged him faithful and saved him. The same holds true today. While we do not know everything about the future, God has told us that judgment is coming to this world. And he has told us how to be saved from the coming judgment. If we will accept his word as true and act upon it as Noah did, we too will become heirs of righteousness, which is according to faith. And as we've seen, that faith is not groundless. It's grounded in a God who has revealed himself in the past, who continues to reveal himself in the present, and who will fully reveal himself in the future. God has made it possible for us to have a solid faith that is grounded in the past, active in the present, and assures us of the future. There is no good reason not to believe God, nor to let His Son come into our hearts and save us from the judgment that will come to those who reject Him. This is fundamental, but so important. We understand what faith is and what faith is not. And we express our faith in what God has revealed to us and continues to reveal to us by stepping out and putting our faith into action. We know judgment is coming. We know that those who stand before a holy God unclean will be condemned. And we know that those who have invited his risen son to come into their life and to make them in the image of his son will be found acceptable to him. If you've not done so, obviously, now is the time to let Jesus come into your heart.